0: Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are in our second half of the book of Acts, and it felt really appropriate to us as we sort of emerged from cocoon life of COVID-19 to sort of take a look back to the ancient early church To look at what marked them as a community of faith and to really learn from their experience and what the Holy Spirit was doing in and through them. So this spring we did the first part of the series, which was called Become the church. We were looking at this people group being formed into the next chapter of what God's design was for God's holy people, which now included not only the faithful Jewish people, but Gentiles as well because of Jesus. It was a really big deal. And so we looked at some of the marks of that early fellowship community who would not yet have even referred to themselves as church. But they were referring to themselves as a koinonia, fellowship, participation, that kind of a word. And that's what they were doing. They were living this thing out. And it was a lot of fun to just look at what was automatically being birthed by the Holy Spirit in their midst as they lived out that new life identity together. And so then this fall, we've come to our second half, which we're calling being the Missio Day," which is the mission of God, as they're realizing this identity is that they are God's mission, God's presence in the here and now. And also to spread this good news was the call on their lives. And they've got to work that stuff out. Being the Missio Day took some messy moments. And that's what we've been looking at to see like, what does it look like when you get into the grittiness of this fellowship kingdom way of living together. And so this morning, we're looking at this moment that I find fascinating, where the Apostle Paul, who has been same, remember last week we talked about Holy Spirit discernment. He's dead set. i got to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit told me I'm going to Jerusalem. And here he is facing a council. He's been taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea. He's before the Roman leaders on one side and the Jewish leaders on the other. And they tell him, do you want to go back to Jerusalem? He's like, no, I want to go to Rome. I appeal to Caesar. This is really kind of a radical moment and I'll explain a little bit more on why I think that is the case but why is Paul leaning into the political empire Paul of all people leaning in and saying you know what I'm gonna appeal to Caesar to get God's work done this kind of blows my mind so we're gonna dig into this story a little bit and I admit I'm gonna do something a little different than what we usually do And so if you're visiting with us, typically we open a text and we look at what is going on historically, and then we talk about applications as we grow in our life together. Today I'm going to take a little bit of, okay, so I was an English major. We used to call it poetic license. I'm going to take a little pastoral license today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this, I'm gonna, we're going to tell this story. So I don't know about you guys, but often when I'm doing it like a devotional, my own reading, I'll read maybe a chapter at a time, and sitting down and reading several of these chapters all in one sitting, the amount of action happening was really fascinating to me. And so I'm going to start by telling the story of these couple of chapters so we can get a sense of, of the, the intensity of this moment, but then the pastoral license is going to come up, because I'm going to use that kind of like, have you ever been on a really springy diving board? I'm going to get a little bounce from the story of Paul to get myself way over here for a cannonball in our culture today. That's my pastoral license, and I'm just owning it, and it will make sense as we go, but I don't usually do that, so give me a little, if you would give me a little lenience today. I think this is fascinating, and I've been sitting in this passage for weeks now, even with the other uh, ones that we've been preaching, just thinking that this moment. Just God put it so heavily on my heart that this is really strange as I am studying so much about the person of Paul. Okay, we'll get there. This kind of blows my mind. So remember, last week, Paul set on this path to Jerusalem. And even though the Spirit has warned him of what lies ahead there, in 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, he says, And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except the Holy Spirit tells me that in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. And then last week we talked about Agabus who uh, had the gift of prophecy in 21:11 and he says the Jerusalem will involve being bound by the Jewish leaders and turned over to the Gentiles. Remember he took Paul's own belt to demonstrate, here's what's coming if you keep going. And Paul was like, I'm going to keep going. God told me to go, Jesus told me to go to Jerusalem. So on he went. So we overlap a little bit in our reading plan, but I wanna summarize the events as they happen in Jerusalem. In 2115 and following, they arrive and they are greeted warmly by James and the elders of the Jerusalem church. They're greeted warmly by the church, by the fellowship. They're together and they're like, yay, Paul's here. And they're greeted warmly. But the the same group, James and the other Jerusalem elders, say, you know what? There's going to be a whole lot of Pillman paraphrasing happening today. But we're just going to get the story going. They say, you know what? We're hearing, people are hearing confusing things about you, Paul. I know you're witnessing that the Holy Spirit is coming upon the Gentiles too. And we think that's awesome. But we're having a little trouble with some of the Jewish people here because they think you've fallen away as a faithful Jew. It's, it's hurting your own testimony. We think you should go and do a purification ritual. And Paul was like, sure, if that's going to help to make sure that the Jews can hear my voice still, I will do this thing. So he goes to the temple and he goes through a purification ritual. Now it's important to know In the entire Jewish law, the system that was put in place by Yahweh to the people of God, the nation of Israel, such purification rituals have 100% credibility to the Jewish people. When you've done your system of atonement or becoming right again with God in the system that God set up, you're good to go in in the mind of the Jewish people. So Paul goes through this purification ritual and uh, that, that would count as him being pure. But in 2127, some people rouse a mob up against him, which is not shocking at this point, right? Nobody's surprised yet. Paul kind of is going into synagogues right and left. Some people are getting upset with what he says, and m- mobs come. He, he knows the mob. But in this moment, I think uh, one of them had said that they thought that he had taken a Gentile with him for that purification, which wasn't the case. So the the mob gathers on, on false pretense, a misunderstanding, let's call it. But here's the thing I think is amazing. They not only kick him out of the temple, but they shut the gates. Paul has been kicked out of towns and kicked out of synagogues and driven off by mobs before. But I think there's something deeply symbolic in this moment that the gates of the temple are shut to Paul. There's a permanence in the symbolism of that moment. All this time he's been traveling to synagogues. And in this moment, there's a group of Jews who are going to try to kill him. As they were trying to kill him, 21:31, word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. So now we've entered our two main players, right? Right? a specific group of Jewish leaders who are plotting to kill Paul and a Roman commander. So here we got like, you know, church and state, but not empire and synagogue leaders together. And these become the players in this back and forth. that feels a little bit like a ping pong game to me. So the commander hears about this, that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now, Roman Empire taking over the world place by place. One of the things that's really important in their plan is to let people know that when we're here, you are living in a safe and effective government. Riots were a big no-no. We saw that in Ephesus, right? Just the threat of the Romans finding out that you're doing this riotous thing and you do not want to be the one to cause an uproar. They wanted civil life to look like it was running smooth, right? just so smooth. So commander hears this, he's got to go. And we begin the back back and forth for Paul. To the commander, Paul politely speaks Greek. And then he turns and appeals to the Jewish people in Aramaic, their native tongue. The Jews still want him dead. But I want you to note in that, that Paul is demonstrating um, a wisdom uh, an ability to know who it is he's speaking to, and to speak to them respectfully in a way that that will um, show that he has understanding of their ways. That that little fact is important. So the mob still wants him dead. So the commander's like, "I've got an idea. I'm going to beat a confession out of him." He goes to have Paul flogged until he says, "Until Paul says why it is that this mob wants him dead." This is not exactly. The best technique, but I don't think it's the only time we've heard of misuse of violence in order to try to get a confession. But that's what the commander goes to do. And Paul says, you can't do that. I've got a little ace up my sleeve. I'm a Roman citizen, and you can't beat me without a trial or a verdict to say what I did wrong. And the commander's all, "Uh uh-oh, I did not know that about you. And so that was an ace up his sleeve. It really was. So this is something I find fascinating. In order to figure out what to do, the commander, side Team Roman Empire, convenes the Jewish high council, side synagogue. Where does that authority, do you guys see like an authority question mark coming up here? Who can, mob wants him dead so the commander beats him. Commander wants to understand, so he convenes a Jewish council. I don't know. I just feel there's a little, like, ping pongy strangeness going on. Weird relationship. Anyway, so in 23-2, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. That was like, you're doing blasphemy, so, like, shut that mouth. Slap it. Um, but Paul calls him a hypocrite, calls him out. Really, like, firm words. But when he finds out he's the high priest, he apologizes. Again, I want you to note Paul's reading of a room and figuring out what the, right. he quotes scripture. I I did not know you were the high priest. Scripture says I should not speak that way to those who are in authority uh, in, in the temple. And he apologized. He changes tactics just like that. So the high council is convened. These are Pharisees and Sadducees, which by the way, are just two groups within the Jewish culture who had a lot of love and passion for the law of God, that people would be good, good Jews. Like this, we we hear sometimes uh, Jesus calling them hypocrites and and that was in a particular setting, but I just want you to hear like, we can't look at these words and think bad guys. These are zealous people who loved the law. But these two groups had one point of pretty serious differentiation. The two groups disagree about the resurrection of the dead and so Paul pivots when he finds out and is like, I know how to get a little, make this work for my situation and he throws a bomb into the middle to divide the council. I have an example of what this might look like in our world. My mom is a part of an ecumenical Bible study. What that means is Christians, Protestants, different denominations of Protestants along with Catholics these women in this small town in northern Michigan are wonderful. So I'm, I'm not, like, this is not a knock on them. They are a beautiful community of faith who get together and do Bible studies. But every now and then someone brings up Mary praying to the Virgin Mother. And like these women cannot move forward. And it's like, because they care so passionately. And that's a good thing. If you know, if you know anything about uh, that whole story, if you don't, it's okay. Just know that there's like certain things that mom knows is an uh uh-oh. If we're going to try to resolve this, we are faithful followers of Jesus. There's this one point that we don't totally get each other and we care passionately about it. And then they come back together the next week and they love each other and they drink coffee and they check in on each other. And it's awesome. So they can get along together. But just think of that moment. Think of that Bible study. These women who love each other and love the Lord. And every now and then it's like we just can't go there peacefully. That's the resurrection of the dead for this group of people who are 100% united in their anti-Paul moment. But he sees this, he reads the room and he's like, I know how to do a little distraction technique here. And he throws in something about resurrection of the dead, fight breaks out. I kind of in my mind see Paul like sneaking out the side door there. So, but it's not exactly how it happened. The commander actually has to rescue him and he gets him out to save Paul because he knows he's a Roman citizen now. And so he, he can't have something bad happen to him in his protection. 23:11. that night, the Lord appears to Paul and says, be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. Up to this point, Paul knows Jerusalem's the destination. That's where I'm supposed to go. He just got a word from the Lord. Okay, here we go. We're going to Rome. I'm going to go to Rome. Jews make a plot to kill Paul via ambush. And they, in fact, make a vow to fast until he is dead. That is their resolve, which I'm thinking they didn't do, but we'll get to that in a minute. But they make a plan, and it's it. Here's what I want you to see. Okay, so when we say when they say like the Jews had a plot, this is a specific group. So when we're referring to this this toxic group, you guys, they know what they're doing is wrong. It's against their own law. That's why they have to sneak to do it. So this particular group that we're talking about has turned their passion for something. Against the law that they stand so firmly about, that they're so zealous about, that they would even go against that and do a sneaky thing. So this this is a group that tweaked to to toxic, is what I would say, this specific group, right? Ambush. Paul's nephew finds out about it. We're not sure how, but he tells the commander. And so now Rome is going to protect Paul from his people, from his faith group. And this gets elevated because the commander now has to turn and he has to get centurions and he has 200 soldiers, 200 soldiers to escort Paul safely through this ambush. And he goes to Caesarea because that he needs to go to governor Felix. So that's where Paul was um, moved when, when Kristen's reading here, he stays in Herod's palace or Herod's headquarters. The translations are different. I, we don't know, like, This doesn't sound like a common prison, right? He probably has some kind of apartment or dwelling within the protection of Herod's palace or headquarters. And this is where he stays. It doesn't mean favor. I think it means like protection. Like you just, you're a Roman citizen. Like we have to protect you from those people. So I think that that's what we're hearing in the fact that he gets an apartment there. And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, comes with elders and a lawyer. And the verdict is postponed for two years. Two years. Where were you two years ago? Around here, we were just getting together our feedback group to try to figure out how we were going to adjust after a season of change, what maybe we would be looking for in a new pastoral staff. We were hearing where we were headed. The coronavirus, COVID-19, first reported cases to the World Health Organization in China had not yet even happened for two more months. Two years. Go back to where you were two years ago and now think of Paul. Hanging out. No official charges against him. Nobody's brought a charge that's stuck. This verdict on even what to do with this man is just up in the air for two years. October 2019, folks, that is a long time. It feels like a lifetime ago. So time passes. He's at Herod's palace. We pick back up in chapter 24, verse 27. Verse 27. After two years went by this way, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. Okay, so the governor's even changed. Now we have like a new political group coming through. But, and because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. So we see that the Roman officials can't just let him go because the Jewish people are really mad. And also because he's a Roman citizen, they're going to ambush him and kill him. And that won't look good on his record. But he also doesn't exactly have anything to say on why they're keeping him. The Jews say, send him to Jerusalem for a trial here. And they've reset the ambush. That's what scripture tells us. Festus says, nope, you got to come here. Here's what I want to point out. Willie Jennings says this, 40 people have vowed not to eat or drink until their plot to kill him is fulfilled. Two years have now passed and their bloodlust has not abated. I was just thinking about this. Like, have you ever had a fight with somebody and it was really hurtful or maybe like a bad breakup or something? And you're like, my heart is broken. I can't not think about this. After two years, it's kind of calmed down at least a little bit. Like they are just ready to pick up that ambush as if the two years hadn't even happened, still thinking this is the right thing to do. We're gonna do the same thing. And then the reading that Kristen read for us today happens. And they say, nope, you're gonna have to come here. So now King Agrippa and his sister Bernice show up and Festus says, I have this guy here from when I arrived in office, like he was already a problem handed down to me. I don't even know what to write about him when I send him. I don't even know what I'm saying. Like here, here's my problem, you take it. Like that doesn't feel very professional. What am I even gonna write about this guy when I send him on? But he appealed to Caesar. Why is this so fascinating? This whole passage, so fascinating to me. Jesus is talking to his disciples as recorded in Matthew 10, when he's about to send the 12 out into their own mission field. And he says this, Look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. But beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers but this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. When you are arrested, not if, when you are arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. For it is not you who will be speaking. It is the spirit of your father speaking through you. What soothing words that Paul really seems to have heard and taken to heart. Be as shrewd, as snakes, and as harmless as doves. Since when is Paul so patriotic about his Roman citizenship? When we read the entirety of Paul's words, what he always is bragging about, or actually he's establishing his authority, It's not really bragging, that's like Melissa saying that, but he's always saying, I'm like the best Jew ever. If anybody wanted to see a good and faithful Jew, look here, it's me. He writes that way. Because he wants to establish that he's, a continuation of God's story is what he's proclaiming, not him, sorry, that was right. Jesus is a continuation, but he's trying to say, this isn't a new religion. Listen, I'm talking about the fulfillment of what God has said through our whole scriptures. I'm like the most faithful Jew ever, and I know this is the next chapter. Listen to me. I have, he, he talks like that in other places, right? Also, he talks about being kingdom citizens. Where am I in my notes? Philippians 3.20. We are citizens of heaven, That's what Paul writes to the church where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. We're eagerly waiting him to return as our savior. He proclaims kingdom citizenship. Now all of a sudden he's like, I'm Roman, send me to Caesar. I just think it's so anti-Paul, but it's not. Be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. I want a trial in Rome. I'm a Roman citizen and I have rights. 25, 25, Agrippa and Bernice talk and say, but in my opinion, he's done nothing deserving death. However, they still don't have a charge against him, you guys. Like he wasn't even the one inciting that. They literally have nothing. It's been years. But anyway, however, since he's appealed his case to the emperor, I have decided, King Agrippa says, I have decided to send him to Rome. Let's think about this a second. Why not? Because we have nothing against him. Maybe we ought to like let him go. Why wouldn't anybody say that? Why? Festus knows there's nothing against Roman law that's happened here, but he wants a political win with the Jewish leaders, and he knows they're super, super mad about this person, and so he needs to not lose their support. Legally speaking, a decision by Festus in Caesarea is legally a decision by the emperor. So what that means is he could have decided. He doesn't need to send him to Rome to make a Roman Empire decision that is legally binding. I think he wants the problem off his plate. That's what I think. Festus could have rejected Paul's appeal to go to Rome, but after consulting with his counsel, he decides to grant it, and by so doing, he can sidestep any blame for putting him to death as a guiltless Roman citizen, and he can escape the Jews' upsetness. Ire is the word that the commentary said, but I, never, I don't know, it sounds like a weird word. Upsetness. The Jews' upsetness for not bowing to their demands. This is a political move for the governor. But in the political move, he says, or the king has says, I have decided to send him to Rome. You notice that that was the divine plan all along. Fascinating, isn't it? Anyway, why doesn't Paul say, why are you even holding me? So, like, why don't they say we just need to let this guy go? He doesn't need to go to Rome. But why doesn't Paul said, Why aren't you holding me? Why? Paul knew he was called to go to Rome. All of a sudden, here's an opportunity to get safe passage to Rome. He's called, and this trip, this suffering, this whole Ju- Jerusalem bit chapter seems to be the way to get there, and he does so via his Roman citizenship. He works the system to get the platform he needs to fulfill Jesus' call on his life, which is really interesting. It's as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. He speaks Greeks to the Roman, Aramaic to the Jewish council, Jewish council. He knows his audience in different situations, and he knows that he sees a path that gets him where Jesus has called him to go to keep on telling the good news of Christ. He causes infighting with the Jewish leaders. How does he do it? By using their own rules and knowing their buttons to push. That's how he does it. He gets the platform in Rome. How? By using Rome's rule and knowing what buttons to push. He's being incredibly savvy in this moment. So as we observe this ping pong between the, the, this group of Jews and Rome, where are James and the other elders of the church? You guys, they've been gone this whole time. We don't know. They may have visited him while he was in that apartment to help provide his needs, but like they, they're not players in the ping pong match. Do you see that? Their names haven't come up since they greeted him warmly. So This is really interesting. This is the situation where Paul finds himself in. All right, I'm here, ping pong between Jews and Rome, and he needs to figure out how to use his situation to gain the platform he needs to stay true to the call Jesus put on his life. In 2630, then the king, the governor, Bernice, and all the others stood up and left. As they went out, they talked it over and agreed, this man hasn't done anything to deserve death or even imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, He could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And I think Paul knew that. I think that Paul knew exactly what he was doing. This is where I use this a little bit as a springboard. I found this fascinating because I've been studying a lot about Paul and his whole corpus, the whole kingdom citizenship thing, all of his heart for that. And I know that he's not a fan, a cheerleader for the Roman Empire. So this moment was really fascinating. So I'm going to use this to do my little springboard cannonball into another example which I still is linked so give me time but I find inspiration in his actions a few weeks ago I if you ever want to know where we're headed in a series my office is just off the overflow room and it's up on the board so a few weeks ago Lucas was in my office for a meeting and he's like where are you going here and I was like I have no idea I just think it's so fascinating that Paul appeals to Caesar and Lucas said I'm not quoting I'm paraphrasing you Um, holler if I do it wrong. He's like, I actually find it really interesting. It reminds me when people have to leave a toxic church environment and to find a safe platform to turn around and speak right back to that toxicity. They need to leave the people that they knew and loved because they have found it has become so toxic that the only way to gain safe platform and to speak back truth to something better is to have to go and use a different platform, perhaps one unexpected. And I was like, okay, that does not preach well at all, Lucas. That's going to be real rough. But the fact is, he's absolutely 100% right. Please stay with me through this, because it gets tricky for a minute. We've seen a lot of this in the news lately. We've seen situations where there have crept up in well-meaning communities a system of toxicity that sometimes includes power abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse, bullying, etc. And these things make the news. And they make the news because somebody had to finally say, this culture isn't safe and it's not changing. And they had to go somewhere else and be so brave to speak back, not because they were trying to do damage, but because they were trying to rescue Christ's church from herself. They are brave people who find a platform to speak back because they know a better way, a different way to be the people of God. And we've seen it in the news lately. I know some people who have done that brave work. It's awful. If you know of a situation, like pray for the people who are brave to do the move that Paul had to do here. Now, a quick note, I think I said this earlier, but I want to be really clear. I am not in this analogy saying that the Jewish people are toxic. I'm talking about the group who chose to ambush and go against their own, their own beliefs, right? Isn't that what we're seeing in the news when things are going wrong in church? Like these, are, these are cultures that have formed that go against the beliefs of a Christian, but cultures have, have gone awry. And so that's what I'm talking about when things are toxic. It's not all of these people. Some, just like some churches are not toxic, right? It's not all the time, but some are. And they go against the way of Jesus, Ministry leaders, we've seen this recently. I'm not going to name them because that's uncool. But we've seen some in the news. Be happy to talk about it and be honest. Some ministry leaders, some uh, uh, denominations who are making really important decisions right now about how to handle some uh, abuse allegations, some churches, all of this celebrity pastor things where things can sometimes go wrong. What does it look like to honor the people who speak out against it and the ones who stay to do the hard work of getting us back to something better as the church. Because that's, that's the good stuff of what's happening there. Yes, it's hard work to face toxicity and to acknowledge and confess and repent of abuse that's been allowed, that was perhaps unknown, but wasn't somehow allowed. But like the people who stay and repent and go after something different, it's hard work and I honor those who are staying to do it. Okay, so what am I talking about today? Because, wow, that's a weird place to go. What about us today? So here's what I would tell you guys. I think there have been a lot of things. I'm I'm just finishing my fourth year at seminary, and there's been a lot of beautiful things that have happened and come out of my time there. I'm so thankful for the opportunity. One very unexpected thing is my passion that has just lit up for what the seminary people would call ecclesiology, whatever, what that means... Is the importance of the body of the church to the heart of God. Not just like this is a good something we should do, but like what is the deep spiritual truth that happens around our gathering I love this. So the fancy word ecclesiology, like the depth, the beauty of this thing called church, my passion is off the charts for it. It is far more than a community social thing, right? A social club could do that. We're talking about the power and presence of God in our midst, us as the living witness to what Christ has done and how it changes lives. There's something really huge. And the reason I bring this up is because it matters a lot. Because we can't do this without us. This doesn't work without us. All of us. I love it. All of us. The people of God gathered to glorify Jesus and expectant of the Holy Spirit. Something spiritual and ancient and holy happens here. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. That's Matthew 16. So in light of the situations that Lucas and I were talking about that day, Plus more, right? I mean, my off-the-charts mad was uh, Jesus' flags at the Capitol. I won't go there now, but like, I couldn't even see straight. I couldn't understand uh, the examples that are making the news. And I'm not just talking about Christianity Today news. I'm talking about Chicago Tribune news. Like, the world is watching to see what Christianity is about. And sometimes the stuff that makes it to the papers isn't the pretty stuff. The really loving little communities don't always get reported on by the Tribune. It's true, okay? But we see this, and it's really important. I'm seeing two trends that I think could very easily undermine our witness as the Holy Church of Christ. And I want to bring these up today. You might be like, well, Melissa, these aren't for us. Like, we are the ones here. Bless you. I know that. I love it. But if you're in positions anywhere like mine, which means that you have friends who are Christians and working through the same newsreels that we're all working through, if you have friends, I feel like there are often two different things that I'm seeing a lot of, and I want to equip us as a community of believers for when these conversations happen so that we can speak to the beauty of the ecclesia, the the ecclesiology, the, the church, the beauty of this messy, gritty thing that we get to do. And so I'm not calling you all out at all. I'm hoping to equip us. That's what the cannonball springboard was for, to equip us for these conversations so that we can talk about why this matters. So here are two themes I'm hearing a lot of in our current cultural moment. Number one, this is an almost direct quote from just a couple of weeks ago. I love Jesus, but I can't really get behind religious institutions right now. Well, when you say it that way, it don't sound all that much fun to me either. But it's true, and it's really coming from a place of deep hurt and deep disillusionment with how things should be and what the news says they are. There's real hurt there. There's real hurt, and I understand that. We see these messes, and we say, I don't think that's just not the way it's supposed to be. So I can't get behind this right now, but I love Jesus. I'm going to love Jesus on my own. Well, yes, love Jesus, of course. Like, that's lovely. But there's something so much deeper And if we, as the people of God, can't see what's wrong, then how do we participate in showing something better, of living something better? If you've got that passion for how that thing was so wrong, take that beauty that you see, take that different way that you know is available to us as the people of God and bring it. Because we can't do us without all of us and without you. And so that religious institution thing is, is forgetting that this is like a gritty life-on-life life thing and we need your passion to be part of the living witness of what it is that we're doing and how we need to grow and do things differently. So that's the first one that I would say. Like, oh, it's, you guys, it's so important. If somebody sees, like, that's not okay, Invite them into holy lament. Go with them. You're right, it's not. Let's confess that. Let's face when things have gone wrong and be be a part of living a different testimony. Number two is deconstruction. Deconstruction is a big word right now. I think it's always happened. We just have a lot more language about what's going on in a person. What deconstruction means is suddenly you grow up to whatever point you're at in your life, And you look at something and you say, huh, I picked that up along the way. I don't think that's right. I don't know if somebody told me that. Maybe somebody did. Then you're gonna have a lot of anger and frustration and that's okay. That's good work to do. Or maybe you just picked it up and you're like, I didn't really spend any time looking at that. That's not not the whole story. That doesn't seem right. You have to deconstruct that. And when you do, you feel a little off footing. Like, what is this gonna do? What if I get to the edge of the cliff and I look over and that's wrong. And like, what if, what if I t- it's scary. It's a scary place to be. My heart is there with people who have that. Like if this, then all the dominoes, like what else? I would say that this is a big thing I'm hearing a lot of in our world today. There's doubt, there's asking questions and questioning talk tracks we were handed or that we inadvertently picked up along the way. And it's really important work. It's important work, you guys. Because when you find something that you picked up that wasn't true and right and trustworthy and noble, you need to do the work of dismantling that so that you can reconstruct the beautiful truth back in its place where it belongs. That's the piece that I find a lot of people are facing, the scary edge of the cliff of deconstruction. And what I would say to you is, if you have somebody who's feeling that way, invite them that you will take their arm And you will peek off that cliff, but you will not let them tip off. That you commit to stay with them through reconstructing God's glorious good news. Because there's work on the other side of that. And I propose to you all that that work can be done in community. That work doesn't need you to leave God's church. We can do that together so much more safely than my friends. I have, I have a friend who was going through some serious deconstruction during COVID. We had to talk regularly because it was, she was so scared. She was already in isolation. It's hard work, but what does it look like if we, the church, say we can do that safely together and love each other in it? I'll stay with you through reconstruction because that's the most beautiful piece of that, germ, that part of the journey. In both of these two themes that I see a lot, my uh, pastoral license here, I think that a beautiful thing to equip us with is the beauty of a solid ecclesiology, a beauty of God's purpose, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in and through Christ's church, Christ's body, Christ's bride. If we hold that on in the spiritual realm and we get to be a different kind of witnesses, church, fellowship, community of faith, Whatever it is, the words that we put around it, it's just such a beautiful, important thing. And we can call our believing, Jesus-loving friends to remember that their presence shapes us and matters to who we are. Rich Velotis, I try to have some of the books here if you guys wanna check any of them out that I'm uh, naming. Rich Velotis, Jade is taking us through a study of this if you're interested in it. Jade Wave, talk to Jade. Um, He says this, in a church culture dominated by church shopping transients, Choosing to remain for the long haul is a modern-day miracle. And here, this part's important, you guys. Sadly, many people remain in settings given to spiritual abuse, theological toxicity, and interpersonal dysfunction. When this is the environment, one would do well to find a healthy community. Side note, if you have experienced toxicity or have any fear of it in the space that you're in right now, we have resources, we are committed to doing the hard work Here and so this can be a safe place, and there are resources for that. I am not telling anyone to stay or shaming anyone who had to leave Toxic. I hope you are hearing that. This is, okay, but back to his quote. I'm referring to our call to stay connected with others. This is ecclesiology talk right here, especially in moments of conflict, tension, and anxiety. This is the gritty work of doing church because our collective witness together matters so much. We are where God is present. This is how God is present in our world here and now. One of my favorites, uh, Beth Felker Jones, that practicing Christian doctrine, I paraphrase her whole thing on, bless you, on ecclesiology by saying, do not give up on the holy witness of the the living witness of the holy broken church. I'm gonna do that again. Do not give up on the living, embodied witness of the holy, God is here, broken, so are we, church. Because without it, how can we testify to the grace of God? It's so important that we can uphold the importance of this in our life together. And that's why Paul inspires me here. When we see someone need to leave a toxic situation In order to find a platform to continue speaking God's fuller truth, that's what we're talking about. Wait, this isn't okay. Not only am I not safe, if you're ever not safe, like but not only that, but like this isn't what God intended. This isn't okay. The church needs to confess, lament, repent, do these things so she as the bride of Christ can be something different. When we see someone doing that for fuller truth, even pointed back at that toxic situation, that's like Paul. He's doing whatever it takes to prophetically speak into God's intended plan, bold in the face of unhealth or untruth, so that the message of Jesus continues. That's what Paul is doing. He's doing what it takes to continue God's speaking, God's design for the community, the Koinonia Fellowship. Paul's message of faithfulness would not give up on the message of truth that he had. Even in the face of danger and toxicity and threats to his life, he did not give up. He did what he needed to do. As shrewd as a snake and as gentle as a dove, he navigated through those waters, finding his, uh, his platforms where he could use them to speak to something greater. Because he knew it. He had tasted it he'd been part of this koinonia messy fellowship and he'd seen those marks we talked about in the early church he'd lived that he knew about it marked by things we talked about in our last series devotion to christ devotion to one another seeking god's shalom and thriving for everyone that's what we get to be a part of it's amazing messy gritty holy work church and that's what Paul is doing, whatever it takes, to keep on talking and calling us to that, a greater reality for the people of God. Do not grow weary of doing good, Galatians 6:9. Paul wouldn't give up on the living witness of the holy broken people of God, and that is who we are. Can we join him in our own commitment to the fullness of what we can be, what God intends to demonstrate to the world? And God empowers us to demonstrate this to the world through the Holy Spirit with Christ as our source and as our head. It's a beautiful thing. That's why Jesus is worthy of all of our praise and adoration and worship, because we are trusting that we are being Christ's church and it is in his name that we gather. Justo Gonzalez, also in the book pile here, says this. We live in times that require both a holy impatience and pain, and a holy patience in order to persevere even when it seems like there's no end in sight, remembering that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but of the powers and principalities of darkness, but the power of hell cannot prevail against Christ's church. That's a promise. It's an ironclad promise. I'm going to close us in a minute with a prayer, but first I want to read this. You know, I think about Paul hanging out in that apartment for two years without even being told why he's there. I mean, he knows, but... um, with no, no uh, not verdict, what's it called, a claim against him, and just waiting and trying to think, like, what, what is the plan? Like, wouldn't you think that sometimes you'd get a little antsy? I've been antsy over the last two years. Have any of you? Like, just think about that long suffering, and then think about what he wrote to the churches in Rome in chapter 5. I'm going to read 3 through 5. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials. I think he has a lot of street cred to be writing this passage. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation and this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how, God, how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Paul has Experience that leads him to write those words. He's calling the church to engage with endurance in that which is ahead because we lean in with our confident hope of what's to come. So I am going to take a moment and pray for us. And then, Sam, if you'd come up and lead us through. Um, it occurs to me that for some of you, you might be here and you didn't know that the church could mess up sometimes. <laughs> Sorry. Um, sometimes we do. And we need to be committed in the grittiness to call that out with one another and call us into something more. Maybe you've come from somewhere that hurt like that, and we want to be a safe place. I long that we could be a safe place for healing and for you to process that and not feel like you're supposed to pretend like church stuff doesn't hurt sometimes. Like, I don't want to do that. Maybe you've been put in the path of someone who's struggling, And maybe what you just needed to hear this morning was that like, you actually can have a voice to just call people to what's on the other side, to the more, the more that Paul saw and knew that we could live into in our gritty, broken, messy ways, there's still glory because we're Christ's church. The Holy Spirit is with us. It's a really beautiful thing. And maybe you're just checking out church and this was not Quite the news you thought it was going to be. But let me just say this. The important thing for you to hear if you're just learning about this good news of Jesus is that Jesus Christ as Messiah has not just saved you from your sins, which he has. Jesus Christ has not just covered you in grace, no matter what, when you declare that he is Lord of your life, and he has done that. He has not just done those things, and those just things are super duper big deals. But Jesus Christ has not just saved you from something. He has saved you into something, into a work of community, koinonia fellowship, where where the continuing growth into the fullness of our design continues to happen every day in our life together. And that's really, really good news. So let me stop talking and pray. Jesus, we love you. And you... You came to enter into our humanness. You know our broken, gritty, messiness. Uh, So personally, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for your grace, your covering of righteousness that you have given us before the Father, even when we're stumbly and when we feel like it's probable that within the next 12 hours, we're gonna stumble again. But you cover us with grace. You point us to your mercies, which are new every morning. You give us this endurance, this hope, this confident hope in that which you are continuing to create in and through us. In a world who needs to know that gritty humanness can look like a little foretaste of divine. When we are committed as your people to live in community with one another, for one another, all for your glory and honor and praise. Lord, help us, help us to do this messy, broken, living, holy witness thing well, all to your glory and honor and praise. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missyodechicago.com.